Before we get started, I wanted to read a few thoughts that you shared with me about the show by leaving reviews on Apple Podcast and other places where you listen to the show. First, Conjury wrote in that I get something from every single show, very inspirational and thought-provoking. I find myself reading the very best book recommendations and have grown and been inspired to become, I love this, Conjury, an even better version of myself. All right, Condry, well said. That's awesome. And I want to thank you for listening. And I really want to thank you for the review. And here's one more from our friend B. Fawcett23. In a world filled with hate and divide, the Live Inspired podcast is a perfect place to retreat and recharge your batteries. B. Fawcett, my friend, that is awesome. So cool. And it is exactly why we are here. The feedback that you are all leaving totally fires me up. Yes, it's great encouragement to continue doing the work that I'm doing, but even more important is the work that we do together. You see, your reviews are the number one way that new friends find out about our show and then join in on the Live Inspired movement. The number one way people discover our show and their opportunity to live an inspired life with us. There's a direct correlation, meaning the more ratings and the more reviews that our show has, the more people will be able to discover us. And then together, we can live inspired. So do me a quick favor right now. Get ready to hit pause. Rate and review the show on Apple Podcasts or anywhere that you listen to it. Right now, just take a minute. That's just about all it takes. Pause this episode, rate and review the show wherever you're listening. And if you've not yet subscribed to it, then do it right now. Take a moment, just subscribe to it while you're there. I'll be waiting right here for you when you return. My friends, thank you for doing that and thank you for being part of our Live Inspired community. Welcome to the Live Inspired podcast with John O'Leary. John is the number one national best-selling author of the book On Fire. He's a world-class inspirational speaker and he's the host of the Live Inspired podcast. John interviews extraordinary individuals on their life story so that you can wake up from accidental living and more fully live your life story. Here's your host, John O'Leary. Hello, my friends. This is John O'Leary, and I'm so thrilled to have you joining us in the Live Inspired movement. A couple years ago, I was tucking my little Patrick into bed. As so often is the case, the conversation quickly shifted into baseball. He loves baseball. The little man was critiquing some of the decisions that were being made on the field by the manager, some of the moves that were being made by our friends at the front office, and then he was offering me some of his own solutions to generally improve and upgrade his favorite team, the St. Louis Cardinals. He was seven. He was seven while we were having this conversation. With three more kids to put down, I gave my little Patrick a kiss. I told him that I loved him. We said a prayer together, and then I stood to leave his room. And then I heard from his bed this question. Dad, what does heaven look like? I turned around, walked back over to his bed, looked down at him. The question caught me a little bit off guard, so I stalled, and I asked, "Um, Patrick, what do you think heaven looks like? Immediately, my friends, immediately and without pause, he said, well, I know that it's beautiful. 
I know that there is grass that is colored like rainbows. I know that there's a river that runs right through the middle of it. I know that all your friends and all your family are already there. And I know that God is everywhere around it. He was seven. He was seven. Why are we here? Where did we come from? What happens when we die? Is there heaven? And if there is, like Patrick wants to know, what does it look like? These are questions that we have been asking, we have been wrestling with since the dawn of civilization. Although much has been written about near-death experiences and life after death, perhaps nothing has been as thoroughly researched as the story of the near-death experience from today's guest. This guest is a Harvard professor, he's a neurosurgeon, and he's a self-described, get ready for this one, agnostic. And not only will we learn about his near-death experience, we will see how it transformed his life, but also what it means for all of us today. Now, why have this conversation right now? Well, my friends, I feel as a society, we have a need. We have a calling to be way less cynical. We have a need and a calling to be way more open, to be more on fire for our life, all of life, and today's guest can help us explore that a little bit more deeply. In a world where walls keep going up all around our little groups so that we can stay isolated and we can feel more insulated, I've purposely invited someone onto the show whose faith views and understanding of heaven are a bit different than my own. I think it's critical to believe what we believe with enough vigor and with enough passion that we can actually invite in ideas invite in beliefs, invite in understandings that are maybe even a little bit different than our own. Doing so, I think, will elevate the conversation taking place not only on this podcast, but in our government, that's right, in our hospitals, in our schools, in our boardrooms, and around our breakfast room tables. Today's guest is a renowned academic. He's a New York Times bestselling author of the books Proof of Heaven, The Map of Heaven, and Living in a Mindful Universe. He's been featured on the shows like The Dr. Oz Show. Okay, that's a pretty big one. Larry King Live. Super Soul Sunday with Oprah Winfrey. And now the ultimate feather in his cap, the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. My friends, I ask you right now to open up your journals, open wide your hearts, open up your minds as we welcome on to our show today's guest, Dr. Eben Alexander. Dr. Evan Alexander, welcome to Live Inspired with John O'Leary. Well, John, thanks so much for having me. It's great to be here with you. Well, it is our honor, and with the encouragement of several of our listeners, I have uh, been challenged by them to check out your books. So I, I've done this. I've read Proof of Heaven. I've read The Map of Heaven. And then I also read, just a little extra credit here, the most recent book you published, Living in a Mindful Universe. And then to prepare for this interview, I've listened to dozens of your interviews, including the ones with Larry King and Oprah and others. Uh, I feel, my brother, that I may know more about you and your story than you know about you and your story right now. Well, that's great. I look forward to learning more about it. And I, I've also noticed that on many of the interviews, they begin with November 10th, 2008. That They, they uh -huh. dive, man, right into the near-death experience, what happened, what you experienced, and what it means to us. And I, I want to talk, of course, about that today. 
But I think I want our Live Inspired listeners to experience a little bit more context for your story. So we're going to back the train up just a little bit farther. How about way back to December 11th? You probably know the year. 1953, man. It's a special day for all of us, but it's in particularly special for you. Tell us why. Well, uh, that uh, is the day that I entered this world. Uh, Tell us about uh, the unlikely parents that welcomed you into their life. Um, Well, my mother was a sophomore in high school, uh, and my father was a senior in high school. They were unmarried. um, And... um, you know, they did the best they could. But back in 1953 uh, and 54, you know, a 16-year-old girl who uh, um, lived in a little, uh, you know, textile town, um, whose daddy had trouble keeping a job. I mean, it was not an easy life for them. And uh, uh, she ended up uh, giving giving me up for adoption. She, did, she initially didn't want to. She wanted to keep me, but um, that was not the way things were unfolding. And so by the age of four months, she finally decided to give up completely and sign the papers, giving me up for adoption. She did it out of love. And I know that. And, uh, but you know, at the time, that's just what they, what they had to do. And I didn't know that at the time. So that kind of abandonment can cause quite a, uh, uh, turmoil in, in a soul journey. And I think, uh, that's part of what I've wrestled with my whole life was, uh, you know, that notion of being worthy of love or not. And it's it's been a beautiful uh, source of lessons for me. Uh, but that adoption abandonment wound is very important in my journey, and I think has paralleled in so many other yeah. soul journeys. You mentioned the word abandon, and uh, we'll talk about that pain a little bit throughout our time together. But in that decision, though, you are also chosen. That's the word you use repeatedly, chosen by the parents who eventually raised you. The only other time I've heard someone who uh, has gone through your journey use that word was a guy named Scott Hamilton. The famous ice skater talks about being chosen by his parents, and he just he, he uh-huh. loves that word. You use yeah. it too. Why do you use that word? Well, you know, my adoptive parents, uh, who are very dear uh, to me, uh, you know, they raised me, they gave me uh, uh, more than I ever could have expected from anybody in this world to help me in my life journey. So I've got two younger sisters who are the biological children of my adoptive parents, an older sister who was adopted as I was. And our parents always wanted us to feel very much like one family. And they always told Gene and me that we were chosen. Mm. Uh, that was the word that they used, um, uh, that they chose us, that we were, you know, picked as something special as opposed to you know, somebody can look at a adoption as an abandonment, as, as not being worthy of love. Well, they spun it the entirely opposite direction and, and, and done to make us feel needed, loved, wanted, purposeful, et cetera. It was a very beautiful message coming from two beautiful people. Just from what I've read and heard about your parents, they seem remarkable. And your father just sounds like a, uh, a prince of a human being. Brag on your dad for a minute. Well, he absolutely was. And, and when I meet people, even to this day, I luckily in, in traveling the world and kind of getting my story out there, I often have people say, oh, my gosh, I knew an Evan Alexander. And turns out many of them knew uh, my dad back in the day. And just he was the uh, head of neurosurgery at Wake Forest, Bowman Gray, and Winston-Salem. Uh, he was 
richly beloved by the staff, by the nurses, by all fellow physicians, by his patients and their families. I mean, everybody really just adored him. And it's because he cared for people. He loved people. He was very humble. Uh, I mean, he treated every single soul in this world with great respect. Mm. Uh, He had a strong religious belief. Uh, He believed in a loving personal God and the power of prayer. Uh, But he was also extremely scientific. So for him, the science that he knew so well, and as a chairman of a neurosurgical training program, he knew a lot of science. Uh, But... um, he was very humble. I mean, I just, I don't have enough good things to put into words about him. When, as a child, whether that's at age three or 19, did you realize you wanted to follow in your father's footsteps? Well, yeah, it's interesting. I, uh, when I was young, I, I thought very much of following in his footsteps. But then as I got into uh, uh, college, um, high school and college, I I was thinking that, you know, if I did that, he was such a world-leading neurosurgeon, and I thought I'd always kind of compare myself in the back of my mind to his career. And so I actually, even when I made the decision to go to medical school out of college, uh, which I did because I really enjoyed working with patients in the operating room. I worked as an uh, orderly in an operating room when I was in high school, and that really kind of lit the fire in me to take care of people, to uh, work as a surgeon. I really thought that was exciting. Uh, but when I went to medical school at Duke, the last thing I wanted to do was be a neurosurgeon. Mm-hmm. I thought I'll do something else. I'll be a, a healer, a doctor to help people in other ways. Uh, but I didn't want to be in the back of my mind kind of competing with my father. So I pushed neurosurgery away. But all that changed when I did a surgical rotation in my second year at Duke and fell in love with surgery. Uh, and then especially uh, when I did a later rotation uh, in uh, neurosurgery, and I just thought, okay, wow, Dad was right. This is the field, uh, and I still feel that way. I still feel neurosurgery is probably one of the most exciting fields in medicine. I highly recommend it. I spent more than 15 years at Harvard Medical School teaching neurosurgery, and I'm a big proponent of it. Um, it's a it's a real gift to the world uh, to have that specialty there. But for so many years, it was not... Uh, not an easy specialty. In fact, I'd say even today it's not an easy specialty because we deal with a lot of extremely ill patients, many of whom will go on to die no matter what our best efforts might be in neurosurgery because of the tough uh, uh, diseases and injuries that we face. Even if, if, we, if 100% is we know everything, we just know everything about this thing, what, what percentage of neuroscience do you think we currently have? What, what, what is our grasp of the brain and its function and, and where things are today? I would say we're about 10% along that pathway. It turns out consciousness is way too big and profound a mystery to try and cram into the human brain. <laughs> uh, and there are lots of reasons why I say that, and, and they, they're very defensible from a scientific standpoint. Uh, but suffice it to say for right now, the big struggle was for for me was trying to understand how consciousness would exist independently of the brain because my uh, coma journey showed me very clearly that we can be far more conscious when we're liberated from the brain but understanding that was a, a big challenge and that's the part that I've spent the last 10 years since my coma trying to make sense of and of course that's a huge uh, part of the of the book living in a mindful universe I think explaining all of that and explaining where science is headed on this issue of consciousness. 
you know, you, but uh, I can tell you that we're we're still extremely primitive in our knowledge of this, uh, and have a very long way to go to a, a richer and deeper understanding. But there's some major steps we can take right now to kind of get on the right pathway. Well, since you brought up the major steps, and and uh, I, I think we ought to just step toward them. In order to open up our minds and our consciousness just a little bit farther, though, I, I think it's important to back up just a, a moment. You, as a neurosurgeon, had a patient that you lost to cancer, and his wife, you called her Suzanne in, in one of the books that you wrote, uh, uh-huh. has a conversation with you on the phone about another patient that you are serving, her daughter. And her daughter yeah. is terrified, I, I believe, uh, the, the cancer is terminal that we are dealing with in this case. Why don't you take us forward from that? Well, it was it was just a, a beautiful story, but it had to do with the fact that um, um, I had been the doctor for uh, the patients um, uh, for several family members. Yes. Uh, suffice it to say, I don't want to violate any kind of uh, HIPAA regulations, but bottom line is... is um, I had been there for several of the people of this family, and I remember I was trying to help uh, uh, Susanna through this kind of understanding of what uh, was going on, and, and the uh, the daughter was very afraid of dying, and she had a dream that was uh, very powerful for her. Uh, she had lost their father, um, and the father appeared to her in this dream, and in that dream, he appeared with... Um, a yellow shirt and a fedora. Mm-hmm. And of course, all this is told in the book, Proof of Heaven. Uh, but the way it unfolded for me was uh, um, that uh, Susanna had, had gleaned some of those details from the story uh, in a very powerful way. And the daughter had a, a kind of a profound uh, recognition of a message from the father who was very comforting to her, very real. Uh, in the moment, very convincing that she had nothing to fear, that death was not the end, uh, and that he was there trying to prove that to her. But when she told me that story, the thing that was so amazing was I assumed, of course, the daughter had heard plenty of stories about that fedora and mm-hmm. the yellow hat, uh, the yellow shirt, because they pro- they were prominently figured in some early stories around their, uh, their uh, engagement and then their marriage. Um, it turns out that the shirt and the fedora had actually been lost on their honeymoon. The luggage was lost, and so that was that. And they'd never mentioned it to the daughter. So the fact that in this dream, uh, for the daughter, the father appeared like that in this very ultra-real dream with a comforting message, uh, and, and yet appeared with those items that the daughter had no way of kind of interpreting, and yet the mother knew exactly what that meant that it was an absolutely real encounter. Uh, and uh, so that, I think, uh, we talk about discernment in living in mindful universe. You know, you don't just believe anything and everything that comes along the pike in this business. You have to be discerning. Uh, but the universe offers us plenty of extraordinary clues. Well, on November 10th, 2008, uh, you wake up at 4.30 in the morning. Why do you get up so early? Well, because I had horrific back pain, and I mean, it was much worse than anything I could ever imagine. As a neurosurgeon, I treated uh, thousands of patients with back pain, uh, so I know a lot about the medical side of that, but this was really unbelievable, and I, 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 I could barely make my way down the hallway to get into a hot bathtub in an effort to try and alleviate this pain, and it didn't work, and by the time I got back to bed, I could uh, only collapse 
writhing in agony and a cold sweat with horrific back pain. And soon thereafter realized, of course, when Bond came in the room and rubbed my head to make me feel better, that I also had a horrific headache. <laughs> and this, you know, I was already, my, my cognitive abilities were already sort of damaged by this uh, rapidly progressive meningitis, even over the first few hours. That I, you know, anybody in medicine, you hear about severe back pain and headache, you think meningitis should have killed me. Uh, and of course, that is the beginning of the really extreme journey that I talk about, proof of heaven, one that I really should not have survived. My doctors estimated by the end of that week in coma, I had gone from a 10% chance of survival down to a 2% chance with no chance of recovery. And so uh, within two months after awakening from coma, I had a full recovery. Everything came back. All my memories came back, and they'd been totally deleted. You know, when I first woke up in that ICU bed on day seven, after a week in coma, I didn't even uh, have words or language. I didn't even recognize uh, loved ones at the bedside. My entire NDE had been in the absence of any kind of memories of Evan Alexander's life or religious beliefs or scientific knowledge or anything. Uh, and that's why it's such an extraordinary journey that then demanded a much richer explanation than the kind of simplistic non-explanations that my doctors and me in those early days could muster. So, uh, Evan, you are essentially brain dead for a week. You, uh, well, I was not officially brain dead. Not officially, but... But, but, there, but there is, uh, I mean, uh, I was a lot worse than brain dead in some ways. As neurosurgeons, neurologists who take care of this kind of meningitis will tell you from the neurologic exams and from my scans, uh, it was very clear that I shouldn't have had any kind of cognitive ability at all. My neocortex was way too badly damaged. And for those who were interested in the medical facts, the good news is that um, uh, three doctors who were not involved in my care just wrote a uh, case report of my medical records. It took them more than two years to do it. It's now been published as of September 2018 in the Journal of Nervous and Mental Diseases, and any of your listeners can access that entire medical report for free just going on to my website, evanalexander.com. There's a link early on in that blog that takes you right to that case report and so people can get all that data. But the thing that surprised the doctors who wrote the case report is, for one thing, that I survived. Yes. They make it very clear that this was a deadly case of meningitis. They're also very surprised that I had any kind of conscious experience at all, especially something far more real than any experience I'd ever had. How could that happen when my neocortex was being progressively dismantled by this extremely aggressive uh, primitive bacterial infection? Uh, and they also even postulate that my shocking recovery, because they admit that uh, you know the medical facts in this case cannot be denied, uh, I should not have ever been able to make a full recovery from this. That's completely unexpected. But they, the, the physicians who wrote this case review go so far as to suggest that the extraordinary spiritual nature of my journey, my near-death experience, uh, you know, all that I talk about in Proof of Heaven, might have played a very powerful role in allowing me to have such extraordinary, inexplicable healing. And I think that that was a very brave position for them to take, to go so far. But that's what we see in near-death experiences a lot. For example, Anita Morjani, uh, who wrote the book Dying to Be Me, had an advanced uh, lymphoma that, that put her into coma and should have killed her within hours. That was in February of 2006. And she ended up having a profound NDE and came back to this world knowing the cancer would just disappear. That's what it did. The cancer simply went away. 
and she's a good friend of ours. I presented with her many times, uh, and she's perfectly healthy today. The cancer's gone. Likewise, uh, Mary C. Neal, the orthopedic surgeon who wrote Heaven and Back, uh, had a yes. profound near-death experience with her kayak jammed underwater, 10 feet underwater, her legs broken under these rocks. She was underwater more than 30 minutes. You don't come back from that perfectly intact. She had a very prolonged recovery, but she made a full recovery and came back to uh, orthopedic surgery yes. and also to writing books and telling the tale. Uh, so near-death experiences provide extraordinary examples of, of healing. And that's where I think the real value is, when we go into that in detail in living in a mindful universe. As you share this story in the medical community, are they more... Do they have a tougher time handling the physical healing or the idea that there's a spiritual force behind it? Um, well, what they have trouble with, uh, I, I can tell you that uh, um, the doctors who were submitting that case report told me that they, they approached several journals who did not accept it because they didn't believe it could be true. Right. They didn't believe the medical details of somebody that sick could have a complete recovery. So, yeah, it is kind of shocking. I think that's where the medical profession has so much trouble is believing that all this could be true, uh, that you can have this kind of miraculous healing. Um, it was obvious to me early on that that, that that had been the case, but I love the fact that there's now a medical uh, case review that supports exactly the same conclusion. I would say that, you know, many physicians are open to this, the more they know about uh, the problems we have in trying to explain consciousness. Because for people who believe that neuroscientists and philosophers of mind are on the verge of explaining how the brain creates consciousness, I tell you, there's big news. It does not create consciousness. Mm -hmm. And that is what we are learning in very powerful ways. Consciousness is fundamental. And this very extraordinary revolution in science is one that will absolutely change this world. But I, to answer your question, I would say uh, that the general medical community has trouble with any mention of spirituality. And the fact that we're talking about consciousness and, and a primordial mind is basically a God force uh, at the core of the universe. And some scientists don't like that. Mm -hmm. And yet, if you're going to talk about consciousness, and it is a natural phenomenon we're talking about, Sooner or later, you really have to open up to the very deep uh, uh, kind of challenges to the materialist model, uh, and they're everywhere. And that, of course, is a big part of living in a mindful universe. Yeah. Well, you uh, you are able to teach it because you you lived it, and uh, and you came through, it and you're able to articulate that. If folks really want to learn about your journey, I, I probably the place to begin is Proof of Heaven. But for those who have not yet read that book. I want you to answer the question like this. If your grandchild were to come into the living room and sit upon your lap and say, Granddaddy, where were you during that time that you were supposed to be in your coma? And just a really simple question, because I think that's the question we all have. Where, where, where do you go when you go somewhere else? How, how do you begin well, to answer that question? Yeah, it's uh, well, it turns out to answer that question, you have to more properly identify where are you when – you think you exist in the here now in this four-dimensional space-time in the physical world. And, of course, to us, it all looks like, okay, we've got a three-dimensional world that moves through time. Uh, all of us are uh, simply uh, beings within that world, and we wander around it. Um, and then you try and figure things out from there. But it turns out that even all of that is way too much of an assumption. 
that doesn't really fit the kind of scientific basis of reality. Uh, and w- what I'm getting at here is just uh, the statement and the answer to that grandchild was, would be I was in kind of the home of our consciousness. It's where we truly exist. We can start expanding our worldview to things that make a lot more sense and then explain things like near-death experiences, explain uh, precognition, explain out-of-body experiences. These are all very real effects that do not seem real if you're locked into a materialist scientific view of the world where even consciousness itself is something that you want to say doesn't really exist because our materialist science is so absolutely pathetic at saying anything remotely uh, cogent about the nature of consciousness and the relationship between uh, mind and brain. So your grandchild is still seated on your lap looking up, and uh, and I'm seated on your other leg, and I'm even more confused than your grandchild. <laughs> so let, let I'm, I just push your grandchild off. Now I'm looking into your eyes. Um, what would you say to those of us who say, gosh, this just sounds crazy? Like, how, how can there be a world that I can't see and, and can't feel and can't touch, Granddaddy or Dr. Alexander? What would you say to those well, of us who've never seen the world through that lens? What I would say is, you know, we all have experience with alternate realms of reality. I mean, one that we're all kind of used to is the dream world. Uh, you know, every night uh, humans go to sleep eight hours and have dreams, and the dreams are very important. We don't really understand why from a scientific viewpoint. But they are. They say, in fact, if you don't allow a, a, a human being to sleep, they will die. Um, you know, it's really extraordinary. And, and when you look at how important sleep is to the animal kingdom, it's shocking. And many animals dream. And dreaming, I think, is a huge reason why we sleep. So uh, there's much about kind of interacting with a realm that's unseen um, that is part of our world just through dreams and sleep and that that we don't understand at all. We know it's very necessary. Um, and yet, why all that exists is, is a deep mystery. And so I would just say uh, there are alternate realities. So the world of psychedelic drugs offers another alternate reality. Uh, of course, before my coma, I was tempted to label the world of psychedelic drugs as one of hallucination. But what I realize now is that psychedelic drugs and, and are much more appropriately looked at as a way of opening doors to alternate realities. And this is especially true if you start uh, working with a lot of shamans who are involved in, uh, say, ayahuasca ceremonies. Uh, you start realizing that there is a common ground there, and it's independent of one's prior beliefs and prejudices and all that. There seems to be a territory out there that people encounter and navigate uh, that you can pretty much write maps about and, and have a common discussion of understanding about the topography and the nature of the, that world and the, and the rules that apply there, uh, and yet it's not our material world. And, and the, the important thing is to realize it's not a hallucination either. It's not just kind of made-up imagery that has no importance at all. So we're learning that there are alternate kind of levels of reality, and all I'm saying is that near-death experiencers have just experienced a kind of a stunning, ultra-real level of reality, which they will more often than not describe as much more real than this world. Mm-hmm. That's and that it, and that is something that goes back thousands of years. Near-death experiences that are around across all cultures and continents, belief systems, um, and the important thing to realize is when you study many NDEs, what you come to see is they are not 
just some chaotic, random hallucination, but there are a lot of rules and kind of expectations and regularities about that world that you can predict. This is all just a discussion about the many different levels of conscious awareness that are available to us, and they're not all limited to this uh, four-dimensional space-time and the material realm that we live in day in and day out. In my research around your work and the interviews that you've done, I also picked up on some folks that just don't believe any of it. One of them is uh, a very famous cynic. I won't even give him credit by stating his name right now, but all of the listeners would have would have heard of this gentleman. And he, he just threw you under the bus, and then he went forward and backward and drove a couple times. And I'm just curious— <laughs> It's one thing to disagree with someone, but why does the idea of of heaven, of uh, consciousness beyond what is so clearly physically in front of us, why is that so divisive? And why do people, why are we not open to it? I think part of it is they seem to be afraid of the fact that one of the major implications of kind of my work and this uh, evolution of scientific understanding of consciousness is that. In, in a very real sense, we're spiritual beings in a spiritual world, and we have tremendous responsibility for our choices. And I think that that may be something that for them is is very bothersome. Maybe they would prefer that uh, uh, they don't have to kind of answer in any fashion, that, you know, when, when they leave this world to have a life review waiting for them, where... Uh, according to millions of near-death experiences, what happens is you go through that life review and any of the really important lessons still to be learned uh, for your soul journey from your life experience uh, will be readdressed in that life review. It's a, a, your life flashing before your eyes and seeing all those scenes from your life. And if you've been busy handing out pain and suffering to other people, um, you know, your life review is not going to be pleasant. You're going to have to go through a very rough and maybe they'd rather not think that that is true. Uh, and if you built your scientific career on scientific materialism and on a, the brain-producing consciousness, and if all of a sudden many scientists are starting to say, well, no, that's not really true at all. Consciousness is fundamental. The brain is a filter uh, that allows in consciousness, but only in very, very specific and constricted fashion you might recoil at that because that sounds like something that's so far afield from your scientific research that you'll never be able to catch up and make any kind of meaningful contribution. So uh, it might scare you from admitting that uh, a lot of these answers that are coming from this kind of new and evolving science about consciousness make far better sense than anything that materialist science ever had to offer. I mean, I, th I think our listeners are always looking for just a couple takeaways, something they can begin doing and putting into play in their own daily lives and relationships. What what are a couple th practices that maybe you do or you teach that you think may may benefit the rest of us? Well, I think uh, I cannot uh, recommend strongly enough going within. The answers truly lie within us all. There's a giant move in our world today towards meditation. People realize meditation has tremendous health benefits, strengthening the immune system, reducing stress. I mean, there are many ways uh, that meditation can help. Uh, I can also talk about uh, communicating with souls of departed loved ones because I know how uh, readily that can occur in our workshops and things like that. Uh, for many out there, though, all they want is, okay, so meditation helps me with creativity. It helps me to get a better immune system. It helps me reduce stress and blood pressure. It'll help me live longer and be happier. So, yeah, I'm on board for meditation. 
Dr. Evan Alexander, it has been a joy visiting with you. And we we wrap up every interview with a few questions that tether all of our guests together. Uh, question number one, my friend, is what is the best book you've ever read? The most profound book I can recommend to people uh, is called Beyond Physicalism, uh, Toward a Reconciliation of Science and Spirituality. It's a very deep and challenging scientific book about this revolution in consciousness out of the UVA group, University of Virginia, Ed Kelly, uh, uh, Emily Williams Kelly, Bruce Grayson, and others, Jim Tucker. That book is a mind-bender and probably the best I've, I've ever read when it comes to understanding the depth of all of this. What is one positive characteristic, one trait that you possessed as a little boy that you wish you exhibited as brilliantly today? Oh, I would say uh, curiosity. Mm. I mean, I really had a rich, rich sense of curiosity as a child. Uh, I think through much of my academic career, that was kind of dumbed down and drilled out of me. Uh, And what the last 10 years have been uh, is really a strong reawakening of an extraordinary, unbridled sense of curiosity about the nature of reality. And it's important to point out with that with that extraordinary curiosity comes an, a, a powerful sense of what I don't know. And that is, to me, the greatest sign of wisdom is when somebody expresses kind of a, a knowledge of the boundaries of what they don't know. Uh, the more they, they know about what they don't know, the wiser they truly are about what they do know. Well said. If your home caught fire and all living things are safely out, and you have an opportunity to run in and grab one item, what would you uh, what would you safely run in and grab? Well, there's one thing I think I would grab. Uh, my my dad, I, I mentioned what an extraordinary figure he was in my life, how important. He's still very important to me. I've developed a relationship with him through my meditation. It is just wonderful. But he had a, a little... Bible that was given to him. It would fit in his pocket. He was in World War II in the Pacific Theater, and he saw a lot of horrific barbarity and uh, atrocity in that war. He was there for a year and a half, Um, but he came back to this world relatively intact, and I think it was his belief in God, and I think that Bible that was in his pocket the whole time he was in New Guinea and the Philippines and then up in Japan, uh, I say I would come back in and rescue that. It's in my bedside table. Uh, and th- that, to me, is one of the dearest treasures uh, I own because it got him through so much. And for me, it's just a real rich source of connection uh, to oneness and to this uh, God force in the universe. Well, if you could sit on a bench overlooking a beach on a gorgeous day and have a long conversation with anyone, living or dead, who would you want to be seated next to on that bench? Well, I must confess, I would want to sit but with Albert Einstein, and I, I just I quote him a lot. I've, he's I've in all your books. He, I didn't know he wrote he, so much. He's uh, on every page in your books almost. He's all over the place. No, he wrote a tremendous amount. Was an absolutely brilliant man. And and as much as I often say that, I don't think that he was as far along the pathway of understanding about what quantum physics is trying to tell us as Neil Bohr and Erwin Schrödinger and John. Uh, von Neumann and, and Eugene Wigner and others, I think Einstein was a little behind the curve. He kept thinking that local realism had to apply. Uh, and and yet I think he was so wise that in April 1955, when he left this world on April 18th, 
boy, did he uh, come into a lot of this knowledge very quickly. And I would love to talk all that over with him uh, sitting on a bench by a beach uh, on a beautiful day. What is the best advice that you've ever received? I, I can credit my older son, Evan the Fourth, with that. Uh, he, when I came back from coma, when you know he had been there during the worst yeah. part of it, he was majoring in neuroscience, so he knew how deathly ill I was. Uh, he knew how treacherous this was, but then knew how miraculous it was and was turning around. And when he, he came home uh, two days before Thanksgiving back in 2008, and he gave me a big hug at about 6 in the morning because he drove overnight to surprise me, and he could tell I was completely changed. He said later it was like there was a light shining within me, and I told him it was all way too real to be real, that I couldn't wait to read everything I could about near-death experiences because I wanted to uh, learn everything I could about everybody else's experience. And he told me, don't do it. Write down everything you remember about your experience, every single bit, before you read one word about anybody else's that was the best advice I ever received was to write it all down, write down. before I read anybody else's experience because that would have completely tainted everything I had to say about it. And this way I had a 20,000-word database of knowledge about my journey that I can go back and to and yeah. know that it's very pure and un, unadulterated by anyone else's experience or thoughts about near-death experiences. This was very pristine, been- uh, and I'm very grateful to Evan Fourth for that advice. So are we. What, what, what would yeah. you tell your 20-year-old self? Um, I think the best message, and, and this is one I try to convey to my boys and, and to their friends, is uh, in many ways the world is your oyster. This, as we wake up to the reality of primacy of consciousness, we are uncovering the true power of human free will and of the free will of our higher souls to determine the world of our loftiest dreams. We can do this. It's all done through the power of love. Remember, first and foremost, to love yourself. And the best way to manifest that is showing love uh, for other beings. And that love, compassion, forgiveness, acceptance, and mercy are the greatest gifts we can give ourselves and others in all of our dealings in this world. That's how the world will become greater. It's by loving ourselves and loving others with this unconditional love that the Creator has for the creation. And each and every one of us can serve as a point of light to bring that love into this world. Dr. Evan Alexander III, it has been said that all great people can have their lives summed up in one sentence. How would you like your one sentence to read? That... um you know, that I, I made progress, that I awakened. I mean, really, this is all about growth and understanding. And if in a lifetime here you can make significant progress in your understanding about your relationship with the universe, I think you lived a life that was very well lived. Dr. Evan Alexander, it has been such a pleasure having you on our show. And and, uh, I have a feeling we could bring you back 25 more times and still not run out of questions or stories and uh, exciting new stuff to learn with you. Well, thank you so much. And I'd love to do it again sometime. That is Dr. Evan Alexander III. We will have links to all of his incredible information on our site. I am John O'Leary, and today is your day. Live Inspired.
All right, my friends, if you enjoyed this episode, don't forget the best way to help other people discover it is to rate, review, and subscribe to the show wherever you listen to the podcast. So if you have not yet, please take just a moment of your precious time right now. I'll wait to rate, review, and subscribe to the Live Inspired Podcast with John O'Leary. My friends, thank you for taking the time to join me today. Thank you for leaving your reviews and thank you for all that you do. It matters profoundly and so do you. The best is yet to come and this is your day. Live inspired.